You are listening to the Transformation Podcast, and I'm your host, Kim Deans. Join me for conversations with inspiring farmers who are transforming lives, relationships, and landscapes. We explore how we, wish, how we can be the change we wish to see. Today, I'm joined by Shane Joyce. Shane is a farmer who's a third-generation beef cattle producer from central Queensland, and his lifelong passion is landscape regeneration, making him an ideal person to talk to. He's currently developing a plan to put a farm that he owns in the Sunshine Coast hinterland into community ownership and lease it out to young producers. Shane's passionate about passing on the knowledge that he's learned through field days, workshops, mentoring and consulting. I've been working with Shane for the past year on the Biodynamic Ag Australia board and I'm excited to share this conversation with you here on the podcast. I know Shane will inspire you with some simple practical actions that you can implement straight away. So welcome, Shane. Yeah, well, thanks, Kim. Um, thanks so much for talking to us today. If you can tell us a bit more about your farming journey after that little brief introduction I gave to set the scene, that would be great. Yeah, brief, briefly, I, I tell people I grew up in the golden era of the beef cattle industry when we were pulling down all the timber, planting exotic grasses, and introducing tropical genetics into our beef herds. Um, that was, I grew up in that era. And then when I came back into the beef industry in my working life, I, I worked in, in most states of Australia and different operations. And then when I came into the industry in my own right, it was at the tail end of the beef slump of the 70s. Um, and yeah, the dynamics had changed. Input costs had gone up. Land was starting to get degradation was well set in. So it was a yeah, from it was there where my journey really begins. Yeah. Wow. And and so, what motivated you to follow a different path and get into regenerating landscapes? In 1974, I actually acquired my first farm on the. Sunshine Coast, west of Karoi, and having absolutely no money um, and beef prices were still in a slump, I had to figure out how to do things. So I started, I tried to grow a crop. I actually went into pigs and tried to grow a photocop for them and it failed miserably. So then I started looking for how to, how to get stuff to grow because I thought you just put stuff in the soil and it grew. Yeah. I got a, an agronomist in, we did soil tests and he came back with the results and it was kind of like by the fertiliser company. It was superphosphate and urea. And having no money, that wasn't really an option. Hmm. I inquired about options of, of deep ripping and, and uh, planting green manure crops and I was told fairly bluntly that I'd be wasting the time and money. <laughs> so the, that really set me on a journey then. And I, I actually borrowed a set of, of sea tie and rippers from my father-in-law. Uh, he was a cane farmer. And I then went to a field day at a local nursery. And the Nambour Permaculture Group had a stand there. So I acquired a copy of permaculture too by Mons and Holmgren, Holmgren and read that and it it really sort of started to inspire me and one of the things that inspired me in that was was the 
the concept that in America at that time, to produce one egg to go on, the, on, on your plate, it was costing 10 eggs worth of energy to get that one egg. So I sort of looked at that in relation to the beef cattle industry and managing landscapes, and I thought a lot of that is probably the same scenario. Yeah, that's pretty um, a pretty good way to look at it, really, a pretty powerful way to think about what you're putting in to get, get a product out of the system, isn't it? Particularly when you've got no money to put in. <laughs> yes, and I think that's a common thread through farming like um you know sometimes i think the only people making money are those selling the inputs so you know having to work with nothing then i guess opened you up to opportunities that were there rather than going down the same old path as everybody else yeah yeah and it really started me asking some questions yeah how cool is that though out of necessity yeah, <laughs> yeah. Convention. Mm. And so permaculture is obviously a really interesting starting point for you. Um, what challenges did permaculture and looking at things and asking these questions, um, there would have still been challenges that come along, I guess, in that journey. Were there any particular challenges that come to mind that you needed to overcome in that process? Yeah, I, I read the book and, and started accumulating all the different enterprises. I ended up with pigs and ducks and turkeys and chooks and vegetables wow. <laughs> and guinea fowls <laughs> and I learned really quickly that that one person doing that many enterprises is not a good look and and the guinea fowls were my saviour because because like if you're on the edge of having a nervous breakdown guinea fowls will just push you over the edge really quickly I, I, I caught all my guinea fowls and put them in a bag and took them up and let them go in a, in a patch of scrum. <laughs> wow. And they beat, they beat me home. <laughs> I'm just the, picturing the that. The, we are, the, we second catching was, the second catching wasn't quite so easy, but on the second catching, they, they got the French treatment. They came under the guillotine and went in the pot. <laughs> So I guess you, you got really inspired and I see that happen so often. People get really excited and then going to do everything and then come undone because you just really can't do everything at once. <laughs> yeah. And I see, I see that, that thing still happening with people that are setting up multi-enterprises here now around where I'm living. Yeah. Um, you know, it's two people setting up half a dozen enterprises and, and, and they've got nobody employed. So it's a, you know, yeah. you, it's a really precarious position because, you you know, if something goes wrong with one of the people in the operation, then half the workforce is gone. That's right. It's something I've noticed happening a lot too, especially in new farming enterprises or young people coming in or a range of us often think we can do so much more than we can and um, run ourselves ragged and, pull, and then come undone rather than doing, you know, one thing really well. Um, yeah. So and That's one of the things that I guess industrial agriculture and all the technologies have done to us. So they've taken the people out of the landscape and, you know, we end up with, with one person doing a, the work of probably 10 people. That is so true, yeah. And expecting that we should be able to do so much more. Um, yeah. And with technology, it kind of kids us into a false sense of 
reality sometimes, doesn't it? Where we think we can do so much more, but we end up burning ourselves out and overloading ourselves. Um, yeah, and it, and it comes down like in this day and age, Kim, to where you know you can you can actually leave the farm and go for a week or a weekend holiday, but you've still got your laptop and your phone with you, yeah. so you don't, you don't actually get disconnected from what you're doing. Um, I've actually developed a methodology of turning my phone off and giving it a holiday as well. I can support that. I've started doing that myself. And when I when I switch back on, I don't even want to look at a screen. <laughs> it really frees you up, doesn't it? Yeah, and when you, when, you, when you come back after a couple of days or a week, there's really no more messages there than what you get in a normal day. That's right. Yeah, just planning to disconnect. Um, so when you overloaded yourself with all those enterprises and then I guess you went through a process of simplifying and the guinea fowl were the first to go by the sound of it, what did you end up focusing on from there? How did you bring it back in? So I had that experience and then, then from that experience I moved to the farm at Theodore yeah. and I knew that... Um, I'd been through a whole evolution with buying machinery on the farm at Croy. So I knew when I went to the farm at Theodore that, that owning machinery wasn't a good option uh, because I didn't have time to operate it. So I'd moved to if I needed to do something to get a contractor in. And on the property at Theodore, I went to a, a single enterprise, which was beef operation. And to diversify, we went into cereal cropping but the cereal cropping was done by two share farmers. Yeah. So that meant I didn't have to do the work, I didn't have to own the machinery. I just collected a percentage of the crop. Yeah, and that would have simplified things and enabled you to focus on what you did best. Yeah, it did, and it, it, it got multiple enterprises going on the farm. Um, it started to, I was achieving some of the guts, things I wanted to achieve on the farm. And yeah, it just, and, and it, it put people on the farm. It put extra people on the farm. I actually had uh, three families on the farm involved in the share farming operation. Wow, yeah. Instead of nobody and just me mechanising everything. Yeah. 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 And I think machinery economics is a really um, important factor when you're thinking about farming and making decisions about your business because it can be so easy to overcapitalise in, in a depreciating asset too. So finding the sweet spot with machine, whether you own or contract, is, is often an art in itself and so individual for each business. Yeah. Um, that's something I've noticed a lot. Um, there's no one size fits all in anything with farming. Um, so, yeah, and your, your farm at Theodore, from what I understand from talking to you, Shane, it's sort of where you really started developing that landscape regeneration angle. Would that be right? Yeah, I, I, I guess I started the landscape regeneration process on the farm at Karoi. Yeah. Uh, being, a, being a higher rainfall area, things happened a lot faster. So that kind of put me in a position that when I went to the farm at Theodore to, to start to to look at what I was doing and, and, and begin a process. And, and my first 10 years on the farm at Theodore was basically experimental. Um, nobody to compare what I was doing with. 
So it was, it was kind of like flying blind. Um, and, but it was, it was, it was, a lot of it was coming out of the, I guess, the permaculture paradigm and the value of having trees in an agricultural landscape, whether it was shelter belts or whether it was an alley cropping type system. Uh, but yeah, just having that balance of trees in the landscape. Yeah, and I particularly remember reading an article, I think one of the Soils for Life case studies on your experiences with trees in the landscape and how you found they improved product production. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that was, that was interesting. One of my, um, when I started collecting data on what I was doing, which was in about 1995, I had one paddock where I'd retained 50% of the regrowth. And the aim when I did that was to come back in a few years and, and take some more of the regrowth out. So we began monitoring yields in that paddock. And I was looking at it, I was seeing lots of bare dirt under the trees. Um, I was at the point of picking the phone up to get a contractor in to collect the contractor in. Contractor in. How we going? Was going was yep, I can hear you. Just dropped out, but I'm, you've got you back now. It started echoing. Yeah. Okay, as long as it's coming plenty. Of, so, yeah, I was about to ring up a contractor to get some more clearing done, and... I had six months of collected data from that paddock and, and all the other paddocks on the farm. There was 100 paddocks on the farm. And when I looked at the, the yield data, that paddock was actually the highest yielding paddock on the farm. Wow. So that was the end of the idea of, of, of getting a contractor in to do more clearing. And it started me to look at what was actually going on in the paddock rather than looking where there was no grass, I started looking at, at what was happening in the whole paddock and, and started to rely more on the, the yield data figures. And we've now got over 20 years of data off that farm and our most heavily timbered paddocks invariably are our best yielding paddocks. And the paddocks with the less timber in them where we the ones we cleared for cropping that is where the soil is in the worst condition so where we've got trees our soils the whole landscape's in really good condition the soils are in good condition where we've got less trees you know we're, we're invariably getting not as good yields and the soils aren't as good yeah that's awesome and the fact you've collected data on that is hugely valuable. Were there any specific things you measured, Shane? We were basically just measuring our, our grazing yields. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, rainfall and cattle numbers and, and all that stuff. But the interesting thing was that we've also got the yield figures off the country that we cleared for cropping and, and repastured it. And we crunched all the numbers on that and the the yield increase on the cleared country was very microscopic 
and we we did all the, the costings on it and it worked out it was going to take us I think 98 years to recoup the cost of re-clearing and repasturing it. Wow, that's powerful. <laughs> so, yeah. so that was that was and and when we looked at those soils they weren't in as good condition as the, the where we left the trees. Yeah. So I, 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 I called it multi-generational farming. Yeah and I think where a lot of farmers, they struggle to actually measure and record data, but when you do, it is invaluable, isn't it? It's just such yep. a powerful tool and it can be simple. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I was going to get you to talk more about, you know, observations that have motivated your farming methods, but you've sort of already answered that in a way because I guess one of the permaculture principles is observe and interact and observation to, is such an important part of managing a landscape and I, I think people often um, need to get fresh perspectives on how they observe too it's it's a real art to observe and actually truly see what's going on um, but yeah it sounds like your observations have been backed up with data were there any other observations that motivated you to to, to look at how you could farm differently to those around you yeah look the i guess if i looked at the whole australian landscape um generally we're looking at, at systems that are running down so we're looking at you know pasture decline we're looking at soil fertility decline we're looking at you know longer droughts um we're looking at lots of water running off so we're looking at these one in a hundred year floods happening you know on a regular basis yeah sometimes every three or four years and i guess for me it was okay we collected yield data and that was the physical you know we could measure why and measure all that but the other thing that was really big for me was to was to get out of the office and the data station and go out and actually walk in the paddock get off my quad bike and walk uh, get out of my four-wheel drive and walk and sit in the paddock and start to actually feel what was going on there and look at what was going on in there. And, and some of my indicators were ants, spiders, birds and frogs. And, and I started to, to observe what was going on with that. And some of the early work we did showed that where we had disconnected um, timber systems, so they weren't connected up to any remnant, then we had less diversity in birds, we had less diversity in ants. Um, and another, yeah, another strong indicator that I used to look a lot at was butterflies. Um, and uh, I used to get a lot of comment from people about how many butterflies there were on the place. And I used to get lots of screams out of people when I was driving around the quad bike and they were getting plastered in, in cobwebs as they went through the trees. <laughs> wow. But one of the really big moments for me was, was the property was... 60% of the property was sandstone ranges and gorges, so it was not agricultural land. And when the land had been cleared, a lot of the what was left of the wildlife, what hadn't been extinct, a lot of it retreated into that, that range system. Mm. And 
One of the species in particular was the king parrot, and I'd, I'd find them right up the gorges. And quite a few years into the, into the program, I stepped out of the house one morning, and there was a small water hole near the house, and there was 25 king parrots bathing there in the, in the dam. And that was just, yeah. it was a really a wow moment to me because what had actually happened in the landscape is, is the, the habitat and the food source had been re-established. So these things were starting to come back out of the ranges and come back into the grazing country. Wow. When we got to the end of the day with any survey work and that, and the farm actually ended up selling to a coal seam gas consortium for environmental offsets. And part of the, part of the carrot for them was there was so many rare and threatened species there. Yeah. And, and that was what was happening. We hadn't set out to preserve any wildlife or to protect any rare and threatened species. But as the landscape got its health back, these things came back on their own. Mm. And alongside those, um, you know, regeneration and the, the, the natural environment, you also were able to run a profitable farm because it goes hand in hand, doesn't it? And that was, uh, yeah, that was the really big thing because I set out to, to get the enterprises functional and get good production. Mm. but hand in hand with that, we got really good conservation outcomes. So that was a, a really big thing. And it's, it's, it's one of the things that kind of really keeps me going now with working with any landscape is, is knowing that we can, I say now with a farm, it's got to be a minimum, minimum third of the farm has got to be forested. Yeah. How we do that, we can fit around whatever enterprise we're running. But we need, you know, that diversity, that whole health of landscape really drives our production systems. Yeah, it does. And we have a much healthier business when we've got a healthy environment. Mm. Yeah. That's awesome. It's great to hear that journey. Um, did you, I guess um, some farmers can know the theories of, you know, what they need to do to change if they decide to change their farming practices but sometimes I notice they can know it but when it comes to implementing it it, it can be quite a challenge to change the way they habitually do things did you have anything that helped you move from knowing that there could be a different way to doing things differently was there anything that comes to mind there Shane um yeah I came <laughs> I came into this world as the youngest of four boys. Yep. And so in the, in the family farm, I had three brothers and the father all above me on the ladder. Wow. So, so there, was, there was really very little possibility of me climbing that ladder. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it really drove me to, to being, I, I guess, a little rebellious and looking at things differently and doing things differently because that was, that was a way to actually uh, establish my individuality. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so in a way, doing things differently has come relatively easy for me. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and, and I'm often motivated by, by 
you know, if somebody tells me that I can't do it, it really kicks in the can-do factor in me. I can so relate to that. And it's <laughs> a common theme when people are willing to, to embrace being different. <laughs> um, yeah, that is yeah, very good insight, actually. Is there anything you've had to let go of to achieve what you've wanted to do, like any preconceived notions or anything at all? Because sometimes when we go in a certain path, we have to let go of other things. Is there anything come to mind for you there? That's a question I like to ask people. Um, yeah. Yeah, one of, the, one of the biggest things I see that to do with, with landscape is actually we can we can have either healthy ties to the landscape or unhealthy ties to the landscape. So so that whole emotional thing about you know a landscape and and for me I saw I saw so many people like they might have had just a house block or they might have had a farm and they sold it and they will not go back to it because they're terrified to see what the new people have done. Yeah. Um, I very somewhere somewhere something switched in me, and I've lived in in quite a few different places. And wherever I've been, I've planted. Surprise, surprise! I've planted trees. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I get great pleasure out of going back to those places where I've either owned or rented or lived uh, to see what's actually happened in the landscape, the changes, and see the trees that are there. And, you know, sometimes the trees have been knocked over and something else is growing there. But it really sets something up in me in the value, I guess, of, of going into a landscape, whether you own it or not, and leaving something enduring there. Yeah. So, so I guess it's letting go of the, the unhealthy ties to landscape. And, and switching around to something, what can I do in a landscape or what can I do in a garden that, that I can come back in a year or 10 years or 20 years and, and see something that's grown out of that. Yeah, that's pretty rewarding. And for future generations to be able to sit under the trees you've planted and yeah. appreciate them when there's probably going to be a lot less trees about, that's mm. pretty powerful too. But the other, the, other, the other thing I had to really let go of was, was what I learnt growing up, the, the, the management methods I learnt growing up. Yeah. Uh, and you come across something new and it's, and it's really easy to just do what you've learnt because it's familiar, uh, it's safe and you just kind of keep bobbing along. You don't have to think too much. But when you start to do something differently, then you've literally got to write a new program and it's and it's so easy to default to the old program so that was the letting go of the old programs is is a real challenge and that's whether it's to do with managing landscape or working livestock or working with your dogs or interacting with your family or whatever that's right it applies to everything doesn't it yeah 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 that's so true and when you're letting go of some of those um, ways of doing things that have sort of become traditional in farming families, they get passed down even unconsciously sometimes. Have the opinions of other people affected you at all? Because I, I notice a lot of farmers are worried about what people might think of them if they change, you know, they're looking over the fence or judging them on the externals and it can hold them back from doing what they know 
could be better. Yeah, yeah. I had, yeah, yeah, I had a, I had a, an old guy who I considered to be quite wise share something with me one day about um, it doesn't really matter you what what counts is what you think of yourself. Yes. <laughs> and the other the other thing for me. Um, opinions of other people is what I said before. If somebody looked at what I was doing and, and told me it wouldn't work or said there was something not quite right in it, that really motivated me to, to, to work with what I was doing and, and know that it was going to work. Yeah. You can <laughs> take it that way. It's a choice, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you can use, you can use other people's negative opinions as a, as a motivational tool. That's for sure. I always love the quote, what other people think of you is none of your business. Yeah. <laughs> and I often remind myself of that if I find myself worrying. It's like, well, not much you can do. But it can be such a huge thing in farming communities. Um, yeah. I, I've just had a major breakthrough, Kim, in the last 12 months of actually finally being able to dance. I used to be really self-conscious about dancing. Yeah. I finally got to, I went to a workshop and I learned to dance now so I can go and dance and I don't care whether I'm in step or in rhythm or, or what it looks like. I just really enjoy it. <laughs> and how much free, freedom does that feel to not worry? <laughs> oh, it's, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. For me, it's been really big. Yeah. That's amazing. That's really awesome. And that will obviously carry over into other aspects of your life as well. Yeah. It does, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, yeah. it carries into a lot of, lot of my interactions with other people now. Like, if I just go in there and, and I haven't got that kind of self-consciousness that holds me back. I just go in and I can really apply myself and get involved in what's going on. Yeah, and just being able to be yourself and show up and that be okay. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's a powerful thing, isn't it? It's a shame it can take us a while to get that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to the next lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully I'll remember it all. I hope you do. It's so good, isn't it? So, Shane, is there anyone that inspires you on this path of regenerating landscapes? Yeah, yeah. So I guess the, yeah, the, the starting point of inspiration was my, my parents and, and probably my grandparents who came from Ireland. So in, in their own way, they were all pioneers. Um, the other thing that really inspires me is landscapes. I just, I just love, wherever I am, I love, I love the landscape. But in terms of, I guess, of, of, of people then, it's the whole, you know, Bill Moles and David Holmgren from Permaculture. Um, and out of that came... Masanova Fukuoka, the Japanese guy, the One Straw Revolution. Um, out of that came P.A. Yeomans and Water for Every Farm. And out of that came, came uh, Alex Podolinski and Biodynamics. And then further down the track came Terry McCosker from Resource Consulting Service and, and the work of Alan Savory. So, you know, if you come to my house, I've got a, a, 
a bookcase full of books, <laughs> reference books. I'm a, I'm a real reader, so anything that's I, I just pick up stuff. And I picked up something inspiring the other day. I get a, a GRDC, the Grains Research Mobs news newspaper, and generally I just chuck it in the bin because I haven't been involved in the grain industry for twenty odd years now, and because most of it's kind of industrial agriculture type stuff. But I picked this one up the other day from the post office and something told me to open it up and have a look. And there's an amazing article in there written by a guy, I think he did a Churchill Fellowship from West Australia. And he's researched all the different ways that, that young people can finance getting into farms. Mm. Uh, yes, I just, stuff like that, being, a, being an avid reader, stuff like that just kind of, jumps out of the woodwork and, and arrives on my desk. Yeah, I can so relate to that. Angus and I have a house full of books and, and I don't think we'd be who we are if we didn't love reading so much and opening your mind to what's possible. Mm. Yeah. Usually powerful, isn't it? And yeah. Offered us, our listeners, some good suggestions of some good places to start to look for some information along that track as well. Thank you. Um, and a, a, lot, a lot of those people like... You know, a lot of those people I see as, as my mentors and, you know, they might also come with a swag of habits or information that is totally unuseful to me. Yeah. And I have this thing of saying, oh, look, at, look at all these different modalities and whatever and select out of it what suits my personality. And out of that, I then construct a mosaic, which is actually my own artwork. Mm, yeah. And I can apply that then to whatever I'm doing, my garden, my landscape, my farm, the whole lot. Yeah. That's the magic, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, are there any other resources that you can recommend other than those books that you were mentioning, Shane? Is there anything else that you'd like to share as resources for people who want to follow up and learn more? We, yeah, I've written for resources, books, 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 but now we're so, we got so much information now with Dr. Google and the internet and, and YouTube, you know, like I watched something the other day, a, a, a video from Gabe Brown and, you know, just you get this stuff, you don't have to go to the workshop, you can just plug into the internet, do a search and you suddenly get all this information comes out and, and some of these the really magic stuff that some people are doing around the planet. Yeah, I agree. It's the internet's taken it to a whole new level and being able to participate by webinar and, and different things and watch YouTubes, it's, it applies to all your learning styles, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I guess out of that is the challenge then is to actually start to sort through that stuff so that you don't spend an extraordinary amount of time kind of wasted looking at stuff. It's it's actually distilling it down to what's what's useful in all this information for me. That's right. Because you can so get bogged in information overload now. Um, yeah. And so yeah, really being able to I think if you're clear on what your your own needs are, you can sort of sort through 
what's out there and zoom in quicker but it, yeah that can be quite overwhelming at times too yeah yeah and if, and if you look at one youtube video then then google knows you looked at that and and, and gives you twenty seven thousand others that they think they'd like to look at no next minute <laughs> <laughs> and you think oh wow they really know what i'm into <laughs> <laughs> that's a bit scary isn't it yeah um so what what positive outcomes are you now seeing in your life and, and in your farming landscapes from the methods that you've been using? Because you've had the benefit of, of being doing things regeneratively for a while now. Are there any positive outcomes that you wish to share with us today? I guess on the, on the farm at Theodore, um, the, the, the outcomes there are, well, you know, climate, rainfall yeah so some of the work we did there with the trees we did trial works and we've got a five degree difference in maximum and minimums wow which means that if you're getting a frost um i'm on five degrees um if you're getting a 40 degree day i'm only getting 35 degrees that's amazing and and i look at that in in relation to what they call global warming and they were telling us with global warming that we expect a one or two degree increase in temperatures. And I'm going, I can influence my temperatures by five degrees on my own farm. What's the potential over the whole planet? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, anyway. the, other, the, the other thing was, I guess, in that landscape was the, the wildlife outcomes. Um, the soil organic matter outcomes, we shifted our soil organic matter from a district average of 1% up to above 5 Well done. That's awesome. And when you look at the dynamics of the difference in, you know, 1% organic matter and 5% organic matter in your soil and, and how much moisture the soil will actually hold, it's huge. It's, it's massive, huge. yeah. The other thing that happened in that landscape was, you know, when we'd have a, a prolonged dry spell and we'd get a break, the recovery time on that place was almost instantaneous. Like within, within three weeks, we had a full profile of feed from coming out of our worst dry spells. And not only that, when we did, when it stopped raining, our growth in our grass prolonged for a hell of a lot longer. So we kind of, we were able to shorten up the, the bad times. Yeah, that's something we're noticing in our landscape as well with managed grazing, just how quick we recover and how much longer. We haven't had any substantial rain for a while and we're still getting pasture growth and it's yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. So it's 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 just it's closing up on those those tough times and making them less. Uh, and when we look at a lot of our landscapes, the reverse of that is happening. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And um, I'm a big believer in you know to have a viable farm. It's not just about a bank balance. It's the natural capital. And it's like a bank account. And if you bank into that natural asset base it rewards you with compounding interest <laughs> yeah yeah and it you know it, it paid off for us in that landscape because it gave us the conservation outcomes that, that secured the sale for, for environmental offsets yeah um, 
massive. As, as well as we're still, we're still running a, a beef enterprise there in that system. Yeah. Right. The, yeah, the benefits of both sides, production and, and conservation. But the other, the other, the other, the other positive outcome in in this stuff, Kim, is when people come onto the farm. Invariably, people comment. They say, "Wow, this feels really nice." You know, like you can get people that are not into land management or they're not country people coming into those landscapes and kind of say, "Wow, there's something happening here that's really great." So there's a there's a feeling in the whole thing. That that. That's the magic, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Did you want to talk a little bit, Shane, about um, your project that you're working on at the moment with the sort of getting people into farming and the community yep. ownership of your farm before we wrap up? Because I think that's really interesting and it's sort of like a culmination of your life's work to, to this date, isn't it? Yeah. So the, the, yeah, the old farm at Theodore, I wanted to do a similar thing, but, but that didn't happen. The, gas company came along and we secured the sale and, and secured the future of the landscape with that sale. When I relocated, I'm on the edge of a huge population area. I'm 50 kilometres from Gympie, so at the top end of the Sunshine Coast. So we've got people, people, people all the way through to Brisbane and the Gold Coast. So there's a big market. Um, but the the handicap with these landscapes is the land values and it's pretty much the same everywhere across the world now with agricultural land values or real estate values. So if you're a young aspiring farmer and you want to buy a farm, it's not impossible. Mm. When I was selling the farm at Theodore, it was the dynamics where the bank interest was 7.5%. The earning capacity of the farm was 1% of the capital value. Yeah. So how do you fill that, you know, how do you make up that other 6.5% to pay the bank the interest alone? So I then started saying, okay, I love landscape. I love regenerating landscape. Um, I want to see this landscape continue as under a regenerative agriculture model. And I want to create the opportunity for young people to come and farm and not have to buy the land. So that's the process I'm... I'm working to put the land into community ownership so anybody in the community can buy shares in it and then we'll plug in farmers, uh, young farmers who are enthusiastic and got a passion to grow food for the local markets and they can come in and, and just do the farming without being burdened by ridiculous debt. So that's, yeah, that's a work in progress and I'm... <laughs> That's exciting. We've just sent our emails out for our first interested farmers, so it's <laughs> exciting times. It is so exciting and um, good luck with that. I'm looking forward to watching how it all goes for you and, you know, pioneering something that's really needed because we all want access to good food and, and young people need a way to start getting into food production. So it will be awesome. And I will um, get it. I think you've got a website, Shane, that I can put in the link to the notes for this yep. yep 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 and if anybody listening just to just just google search kilkeven community farm okay and 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 the, the audio google has trouble understanding kilkeven yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah if you put the website link in there that'd be great Kim. I will. so people can get in touch with you yeah because it's a great yep. project and
and you know working in community and power of collaboration is so so important and yeah i hope it all works out really well my my grand vision is that all the people in kilkeven will be buying from this farm instead of going to woolworths or coles oh how awesome <laughs> so it's part part of it's part of the the aim is to start to rebuild our own little community yeah and have them have ownership of the farm so they they really feel passionate about it yeah. and connected to their food yeah 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 oh, it'd be awesome so Shane, um, is there any simp one simple action? I like to end these talks with maybe if you have one simple action that people are thinking, oh, you know, I really need to change or wanting to know how to get started in, in changing and being more regenerative with their farming methods. Yeah. Is there one simple thing you can think of that could help them get going? Can I give you three? Yeah, you can. Yeah. <laughs> three's not too bad. <laughs> so something, something I got just recently off a... Of Gabe Brown video YouTube. Yeah. Was if you want to make small changes, change the way you do things. Mm. If you want to make big changes, change the way you see things. Yeah. And and the other thing is um, the other thing that's come to me more recently is is never find answers. Once you've found the answer to something, it shuts everything down. Continue to ask questions. So whatever happens, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, ask the question, how does it get any better than this? Great advice. Or the question, what else is possible? So continue to ask questions. Then don't, yeah, answers are a means of shutting down all the information. Keep asking questions, the information will keep flowing in. But in terms of a, a physical action on the ground, is is the first thing I do in any landscape I go near now is to get the biodynamic soil activator and get that happen, get that applied to the landscape. Yeah. And I think you do you just do the boundaries to start with, or do you do as yes. much? Yes. That's the that's the the simple quick way to do it is to do the boundaries first. Yeah. And once you've done the boundaries, then you can you can move into just individual paddock boundaries, and then eventually to to spraying the whole thing. But to get it done really quickly. Just go around the boundaries. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's a great simple tool, and I can also include a link to um, the Biodynamic Ag Australia website if people yep. want to track down the soil activator. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's great, Shane. What I've really enjoyed talking with you, and I love those three points because definitely question everything it's the only answer <laughs> yeah and, and and look the other the other the other thing that i found really valuable is to be able to laugh at yourself yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you've got to have a sense of humor if you're going to be a farmer or, or if you're doing anything <laughs> yeah life's always more entertaining when you can laugh at yourself isn't it <laughs> yeah it's the therapy it's I, I think it's the best cure for any disease is laughter <laughs> Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Shane. I'm sure our listeners have really enjoyed you sharing your knowledge. It's been awesome. Um, I always enjoy listening to your insights on farming, and I'm sure our listeners will too. So thank you so much. And I'll, I'll make sure I have some links to your website and other, other resources you mentioned if people want to follow them up. Thanks, Kim. I appreciate your call. Thank you. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs>